Welcome to uh, this evening's proceedings. Uh, tonight we have a lecture and discussion called Cornered in the Centre, Aid and Development in a Rough Neighbourhood. It's uh, jointly sponsored by the Crisis States Research Centre. James Putzel is our representative from that and the International Humanitarian Law Project, which is largely organised by Dr. Louise Aramatsu down in the uh, audience. So... Um, I'd like to introduce, first of all, our speaker, Toby Lancer, who is the United Nations resident coordinator in the Central African Republic. It says in these biographical notes that he is the youngest person uh, heading the UN agency's humanitarian and development work in any country, so we're very lucky to have him for that reason. Uh, before coming to the Central African Republic in 2006, uh, Toby was in charge of the UN's Global Emergency Appeals at headquarters, and has earlier managed UN's humanitarian response in various other situations. Uh, after Toby has spoken for about 48 minutes or so, uh, James will come up and respond or comment for about 10 or 15, and uh, then we'll open up the floor for questions and comments from you all. So thank you very much, uh, Toby, for joining us this evening. Technical confusion, they're just putting a microphone on me because I'd like to walk. In there? Okay. Okay, um, first of all, let me thank you all for having come. I was expecting 10 people. This is um, at least 100, so it's really very gratifying. Um, I, I actually applied for a course at the LSE in 1989, and um, I finally made it to LSE. So uh, it's, 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 it's a real honor to be here. Um, and... Uh, We've got some very young members in the audience tonight, including one who's watching Nemo. Um, I, I understand that last week there was a lecture here by Paul Collier, who used to be with the World Bank, and it was the bottom billion. Uh, and perhaps tonight's lecture is going to focus on the bottom of the bottom billion, um, because the Central African Republic is, is pretty down and out. And uh, if you hadn't heard of it until a few moments ago, or if you don't know much about it, you're in about the same position as I was in, in June 2006 before I went there. Um, so what I'm going to do today is, is fairly broad brush, and afterwards I'll be very happy to go into a lot more detail if that's helpful for you. Um, in essence, I'm just going to give you some background on the Central African Republic. Uh, I'll let you know a little bit about what's happening there at the moment, and then I'll discuss what uh, the UN is trying to do about it. So, this is how I usually start, and that says a lot, and perhaps that says even more. This is a country which, funnily enough, is in the middle of Africa. You'd never have guessed from its name. Um, it's got Chad to the north, Sudan to the east, 
uh, DRC to the south. Um, in that sense, it's really blessed because it's none of those three. <laughs> now, most of those places have problems of their own, as you're all aware, um, but the Central African Republic also has problems of its own, and I'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, one of the things I did before I came here was I, I tried to work out how unknown the Central African Republic was. So I googled it. That's what you do, right? To find out about a place. So I googled it, and we googled the bottom ten countries on the Human Development Index and found that, not terribly surprisingly, the Central African uh, Republic got the fewest search results. So it's the most unknown of the poor. But you might know this fellow. He was a self-anointed uh, uh, and crowned emperor in 1977, Jean-Bedel Bocassa, uh, he didn't last very long, but uh, it was apparently a, a, a really good party. Um, here's another one, Jean-Claude Aristide. Now, he's obviously not from the Central African Republic, but when he was ousted from power in uh, Haiti, where did he go? He went where everyone goes. He went to the Central African Republic. Um, and he landed in Bangui in 2004, uh, and, and nobody was really quite sure what to do with him. But those, those may be two things that, that have sort of you've come across at one time or another. Um, interestingly enough, when Jean-Claude Aristide sought safe haven in Bangui, in the capital of the Central African Republic, um, search results for the Central African Republic peaked. Um, <clears throat> right, now, how poor is the Central African Republic? Very. Its people are the third poorest in absolute terms on Earth. Um, only neighbors in Mali and Nigeria are poorer. 67%, two-thirds of the people in the Central African Republic of the 4.2 million people are living on less than 50p a day. I don't even know how much a newspaper costs anymore. How much does a newspaper cost? 50p? You can still buy one for 50p? And, of course, the, the, the story of Africa is anything but rosy uh, since the mid-'80s. But uh, in some respects, things have been getting a little bit better. Sort of overall GDP per head in sub-Saharan Africa has gone up about 80% since the mid-'80s. And what's it done in car? It's gone up by about 10%. So not only is it terribly poor, but the gap is widening. It's getting further and further and further behind. Um, I don't know what the ratio is at LSE, but in CAR, if you go to school, if you're lucky to go to school, there'll be 92 pupils for every teacher. I hope it's better here. It's about the same, I think. Is it about the same? <laughs> you should renegotiate your fees. 38% of 
people in the Central African Republic are chronically malnourished. They don't get enough nutrients, they don't get enough protein, they don't get enough carbohydrates, they have stunted growth, they have inadequate brain formation in children under the age of five. 176 children out of every live birth die. Only one in four people have access to safe drinking water. Obviously, the girl on the right is not carrying around a bottle of apple juice. That's water that she drinks. And if you look at maternal mortality, it's shocking. Um, 1,355 out of every 100,000, which, if you compare that to Sudan, it's two and a half times higher. In Sudan, the figure would have been 519. In the UK, the number would be seven. Uh, If you are lucky enough in the Central African Republic to find a health post, forget hospitals. Forget hospitals. They exist only in two towns. So if you live outside the capital, and most people do, six-sevenths of the population do, if you're lucky enough to find a health post, um, that's good because it meant you didn't die on your way or in the bush. Um, Your chances are 40% of dying of malaria. The lady in this photo uh, did die, sadly, and left eight children behind. And if you don't die of malaria or water-related diseases or anything else that might afflict you, uh, you've got a good chance of making it to 43. I'm 42. And uh, just to make things even more simple, it's a landlocked country, as you saw from the first slide, I think, or the second slide. Um, It's 1,500 kilometers, or roughly 1,000 miles, uh, to the nearest port, which means it's very difficult to get things in. It's even harder to get things out. So in terms of economic development, it's a very, very challenging environment. Now, when I see that sort of an environment, you know, one would like to believe what politicians often tell us, that we have to do more, that we have to engage, that we have to provide money, that we have to make governments function better, that we have to help people. And... To some extent, since the millennium, uh, there's been a shift in that, as we all know. And aid to sub-Saharan Africa, um, it's gone up by about 54% on average. But in car, it's gone down by 60%. And so one of the things that I'd like you to start thinking about, and we'll take a look at this now, is, I mean, how, how can this happen? How can you have a country which is so desperately down and out, so desperately poor, and yet assistance to it is nosediving. 
how can it be that in the region it gets the lowest, the lowest level of aid per person? That's $23.50 of aid per person per year. That's $2 a month, one pound a month. Coffee at Starbucks costs how much? Two twenty. There's a student who can afford coffee at Starbucks. And I mean, I, I, you know, when I see these sorts of statistics, when I got to CAR, I just asked myself, why is this? And clearly, we immediately think of the usual cocktail of excuses and reasons, and some of them perfectly justified. We think about, oh, it's politically unstable. Um, so we did some research on that, and we saw, well, it is politically unstable, no question about it, but it's a lot less unstable than other countries. Or we thought to ourselves, well, it's probably not very interesting. They haven't got gold or diamonds or oil. So there's no real reason to engage in the Central African Republic. Well, it's, the country's got the fifth, largest, the fifth largest diamond deposits in the world. It has some of the largest gold deposits in the world. Um, it has now started mining uranium of a very high quality. Timber galore and something that we haven't put on this map yet because it's yet to be confirmed, but it's about to be confirmed, I suspect. Um, in the northeast, uh, they're relatively sure that they have now found oil. So then I thought, well, perhaps this place is particularly corrupt. No donor government would want to invest in, in a country if it's very corrupt. But it's less corrupt than other countries. Other countries that are the aid darlings in many cases. You know, we talk about aid orphans and aid darlings. Angola, Chad, Nigeria. Chad gets twice as much aid per capita, per annum. If anyone at any stage wants to help me try to understand why the Central African Republic doesn't get much help, let me know. Um, so then I thought, well, maybe the regime is particularly repressive. And actually, I came across one indicator the other day that suggests that it is. But actually, they, they had elections in the Central African Republic in 2005. They were organized by the UN and uh, I wasn't with that UN then, so I can make this statement uh, uh, without any uh, bias. I mean, they were deemed free and fair by international observers. So you have a, a government in place, a head of state in place, who really is legitimate. Uh, and I think that that says quite a lot. Now... <coughs> So I've painted a pretty bleak picture. You've got this very, very poor country uh, in the middle of nowhere. 
not getting much help. Um, and now the picture is just going to get a little bit darker um, because starting in early 2006, uh, we had a couple of rebellions or rebel groups pop up, one in the northeast and one in the northwest. And this has really destabilized things internally uh, significantly. The phenomenon are different. We have one rebel group in the northwest and one in the northeast. But the results for people are almost always the same. So since 2006, during the last 18 to 20 months, we've now had 300,000 people forced to flee from their homes. That's 300,000 out of 4.2 million. And it's the highest displacement rate as a proportion of the population of any country in the world. So in one respect, CAR has won again. It's on the top of the list, just that it should be on the bottom of that list. And you have population movements in many different directions. You have people who are fleeing internally. You have people who are fleeing into Cameroon, into Chad, and most recently, people who fled from the Central African Republic into Darfur. There are two hotspots in terms of violence and in terms of these rebellions. And again, during the question round, I'll be happy to go into a lot more uh, detail because I'm aware that many of you are dealing with human rights issues or humanitarian law issues or crisis issues. Um, obviously, there are different sources of violence, different perpetrators of violence, um, including the state, including the army, uh, including different rebel groups, including poachers, including rebels who come in from Chad, rebels who come in from Sudan, uh, or sometimes ne'er-do-wells who are trained in one of those two countries. And as of the end of 2006, this destabilized the country to the extent that the government was about to topple. You had rebel groups snowballing, snowballing, coming down from the northeast, and they would have arrived in the capital, Bangui, if it hadn't been for international engagement engagement that I favored at the time and I continue to favor now. This is the northwest. The little red dots are villages that have been destroyed, often torched, not always. Uh, the area is about the size of Denmark. The triangle, which is the most, uh, this triangle here, is the most violent area in the country as we speak today. Um, is the size of the West Bank. And in that small area, the size of Denmark, you've got about 800,000 people living. Uh, and it's a bit rough. In the Northeast, which is politically more interesting, perhaps, to an audience in London, uh, you've got, I would say, a more international dynamic whereby what is happening in Darfur, what is happening in Sudan, what's happening in Chad has a direct bearing, an immediate bearing on what happens in the northeast of the Central African Republic. 
And if you are a, an impoverished villager trying to eke out a living, uh, and remember if you're a lucky one, if you're in that top bracket of one-third of Central African Republic's population that get more than a dollar a day, you're very fortunate. But most villagers aren't. And um, before I went to CAR, I was often told, well, you know, it's basically a poverty problem. This is not about humanitarian relief. It's not an emergency. But when I started traveling around in the northwest and the northeast, I realized immediately, well, poor people have roofs over their heads. They have access to rivers. They can till their fields. Poor people don't have their villages torched. They don't get chased into the bush. They don't have their arms slashed, as did the gentleman in the middle. Uh, and they don't suffer from gender-based violence to the extent that women, and it is mostly women, do in the Central African Republic. We currently have data that suggests, and again, it's a suggestion, it's, we don't, that the confidence interval of some data in the Central African Republic is, is questionable, but we have some data that suggests that up to a quarter of women in the Central African Republic have been raped. When you flee in the bush, that's what life is like. You had nothing, and then you have less. Now, my job... is really easy. Um, I, I, was, I was sitting very comfortably in Geneva one day when the telephone rang and there were a couple of people on the other end and they said, Toby, we want to send you to the Central African Republic. And I said, you've got the wrong number. Um, but... I was asked to go to the Central African Republic because the, the, the sense was that the UN has to do more. And uh, in, in that sense, it was a tremendous honor to be asked to go there. Um, and I responded nervously, thank you for your expressed confidence in my unproven abilities. Um, the government had just invited the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to come in to the Central African Republic and start doing some investigating regarding events that had taken place there a while back, between 2002 and 2003. But they were interested in getting the ICC involved, and I think that this was a real signal that this was a government that wanted to engage with the international community, that was interested in looking at rule of law, and wanted to take human rights much more seriously. But it couldn't. And, you know, I should have said at the beginning, perhaps, this is a country which is bigger than France. It's the size of Texas, uh, two and a half times the size of Britain. And it's got 4,000 soldiers, most of whom have no cars. They've not seen a salary for months. They're very, very poorly equipped. Um, they have few, if any, communications systems, um, and they are under very regular threat, either internally, because the country has had a whole series of internal political problems during the last 
40 years since independence, but also uh, because of these external factors that I, I mentioned. So I was called and asked, can you go in there and try and do something? So off I went, and um, one of the first things I realized was that what the UN was doing was exactly the same as everybody else, very little. The UN agencies had very little money, just as other donors or other sources of development aid had been given very, very little money or were engaged to a very, very, let's say, poor extent. Um, so one of the things that I did as the resident coordinator was I started knocking on doors. And the first doors that I started knocking on were my own doors. So some of these, I assume you recognize some of these uh, symbols, but you've got UNICEF, the World Health Organization, Human Rights, the World Food Program, the High Commission for Refugees, uh, FAO, Global Fund, um, against malaria, tuberculosis, and uh, HIV/AIDS, UNFPA, and the UN, the UN proper, uh, UNDP as well, the United Nations Development Program. One of the first things I did was I started knocking on those doors at the headquarters and saying, "Hey, listen, there's this really down and out place, the Central African Republic. Uh, I think we need to do more. I think we can do more." And you know, people working in headquarters are busy. They cover lots and lots of countries. And um, the, the countries that they cover, I think, with the most gusto uh, are, are the ones that are highest on the political agenda. And I think you've already garnered from what I've said that this country has never really been very high on anybody's political agenda. So even mobilizing some parts of the United Nations was, was a challenge. Another thing, or a, perhaps a next thing, there's no particular order in this, but I'm just sort of letting you know what it's like when you get to a country um, that has one flight a week. One flight a week to Bangui. Uh, so when I arrived, it's kind of like a party when you get to Bangui Airport, because the plane arrived, and everyone celebrates, you know, and they welcome you, because you've come back, or you've come for the first time. So one of the first things I did when I got there was I, I was very lucky to go and meet the president. And uh, this is the current president. He came to power illegitimately in 2003 in a coup. But as I mentioned earlier, he organized an election in 2005. And uh, actually, he called an election. It was organized by the UN, and it was deemed free and fair. Um, and one thing that he's managed to do, which I think previous presidents hadn't done uh, to the same extent, is he, he tried to get hold of citizens of the Central African Republic who worked for the World Bank, who worked for the African Development Bank, who were professors in Oxford or the Sorbonne. And he asked them to come back to the country. And he's created uh, a very meager fund to be able to pay some of these technocrats enough so that they can stay in the country and work. And he's up to about 12 
of these technocrats who have come back. So the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Economy, the Minister of Plan, the Prime Minister, and so forth, are people who actually used to be people like me. And that is helping. We made a decision very, very quickly And, and I would say headquarters were remarkably uh, open-minded on this, that we would manage things locally. I suggest to you that this would be more difficult in a higher profile place. But in the Central African Republic, which is almost impossible to telephone from any country, um, headquarters were very open-minded on this and they said, you get on with it, go ahead. Tell us what you need, we will provide it, and they have, and we want you to manage things locally. So decisions are being taken increasingly locally. Decisions about money are taken locally. We've created funds which uh, have enabled us to encourage organizations to come to the country and work there, have encouraged organizations to set themselves up and, and get engaged, and we're managing that locally. And I think donors increasingly are coming on board with this approach as well. This sounds terribly simple, but we made some decisions very early on that, uh, hang on a minute, we've got 400 people working for the UN in the Central African Republic. 385 of them are in the capital. Surely, more of them need to be outside the capital. So quickly... We started moving around the country, which is not easy in many ways. Uh, it's not easy logistically. It's not easy uh, in terms of security. When I arrived in the country, the United Nations was moving around all roads with armed escorts. When I asked why, the best answer I could get was because we've always done it that way. Uh, that wasn't quite good enough. So we took a look at that and we managed to get rid of armed escorts which to some of you who have not worked in these types of situations may seem strange, but actually it's a lot better working without armed escorts because you can get into villages, you can listen to people, and you can, uh, one can do one's job much, much more easily. Uh, so we started moving around the country, and lo and behold, we came across lots of things that we didn't know before. And lo and behold, we came across some wonderful people who had been out there for years working for some organizations like the World Wildlife Foundation or like a small Italian NGO called Corpi, which had been out there for, I think, 20 years. But sometimes it's tough going. Uh, there are no paved roads, no paved roads uh, in most of these areas. There is only one paved road outside the capital, and that heads towards Cameroon. It doesn't actually reach Cameroon yet, but we're hoping that one day it will. Uh, this is a photo of a, of a World Food Program truck that was trying to reach a village in the northeast of the country. Uh, it took nine days to get there, and that's what we deal with. Another thing that we've done, which I think is, is important to mention, is we've now got uh, a presence in, I think it's eight places outside the capital, and we've got 150 people working out there. 
And uh, if any of you would like to join them, they feel rather lonely. Sign up now. Um, these are difficult working environments. These are places where there is certainly no electricity and there won't be any for a long, long time. Uh, there is no water and there won't be any for a long, long time. Uh, you're really out in the bush and you're working with communities, sometimes in towns, trying to do the most basic, simple things. Primary healthcare, primary education, trying to get things up and running, trying to get communities organized so that they can understand some of the most obvious things to you and me. Wash your hands before you eat. Wash your hands before you eat and your kids won't get sick. Some simple advocacy campaigns. Sleep under a mosquito net. We've just bought 800,000, 800,000 mosquito nets, which we are in the process of distributing throughout the country. And we realized very quickly, oh, we needed to do an advocacy campaign first. Most people don't know what a mosquito net is. Is this a fishing net? What do I do with this? Do I put it over my house? Over my bed? Stuff it in the window? So there are some very simple tasks uh, that don't cost a lot of money, but that require intensive work outside the capital. Presence is key to that. And the other thing that's absolutely crucial, and this is something where I've uh, spent a lot of my energy during the last uh, 16 months, is trying to get more partners, trying to get more organizations interested in the Central African Republic, concerned about the Central African Republic, willing to work in the Central African Republic. I'm waiting for Oxfam and Save the Children. And I'm willing to help both. And nothing happens without money. So we've been working very, very hard, knocking on doors in capitals of economically rich countries, saying, listen, we really need you to engage. We need your help. And you can, you can do a lot with very little money. And uh, the number of donors, the number of economically rich countries that have engaged has, has gone up, mostly for humanitarian aid, which worries me, because that's really a band-aid, and we need simple measures that will have an impact long-term. But we're up to 19 humanitarian donors for 2007. Um, some of them have been very, very generous, including the UK, which this year, I think, just for the second or the third time engaged and provided a significant amount of funds for the UN and for some non-governmental organizations and for the Red Cross to work in CAR. But in my view, this is what it's really about and this is what we're working on this, this week and this is one of the reasons that I got on that lonely flight out of Bangui. Uh, We've been trying to engage donors on development issues, long-term issues, structural issues that could really help people climb out of this 
miserable lot in which they find themselves. And uh, on Friday of this week, there will be what's known as a roundtable, a group of development partners, donors, who will sit and listen to the government present its vision, its strategy to reduce poverty over the next three years. Political stability will be key to that, reforming the security sector, getting an army that functions, a police force that's available, a justice system that works as one would expect it to and not based on witchcraft. Uh, Those are going to be key elements and those will be discussed this Friday in Brussels at a donor roundtable at which the government is hoping to raise lots of money and we're managing those expectations saying, you know, if you, if you leave that donor roundtable with 50 million pounds pledged, that would be already be a tremendous step in the right direction. And we're doing that, of course, because we have these things called the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. And I think most of you have heard of them. Um, If we start with absolute poverty, as you, when, when one starting point was that 62% of the country, uh, sorry, of the country's population was in living in absolute poverty, so we should get that down to 31% by 2015. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, we're at 67. So we're going in the wrong direction. Primary education, the goal of primary education for all. 1990, we were at 58% in CAR, 58% of kids who finished primary school or who had access to it and finished. Right now, we're at 55. So there's lots to do. We're supposed to be getting maternal mortality down to about 171. And we're at 13.55, as I said earlier. And in the UK, it's seven. So that's where I'm going to leave it. I'm uh, very pleased to have run through that with you, perhaps a little quickly. Uh, be very happy to go into more detail but in essence what I've tried to do is say this is a desperately poor place Uh, nearly all the trends are going in the wrong direction but realistically I do think we're managing to stop the slide Uh, we've got a government that's serious, we're engaging and the we is a bigger we than it was just a, a year and a bit ago You've got more UN agencies, more NGOs, a bigger Red Cross, more donors, more governments looking. And if we can keep that up, more hope. And if you'd really like more information, if you're keen, this is where you can find it. Um, We've got a blog, an intranet, and every imaginable tool in terms of information management thanks to three fantastic human beings who came to us from the LSE. Uh, 
one of them is here. Um, HDPT, which is a terrible acronym, but it does mean something. It's Humanitarian and Development Partnership Team. Okay? So feel free to take a look at that, and uh, I'll be very happy to take any questions that any of you have. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, well, we will take some questions soon, but I'm going to ask James Putzel, who's a professor of development studies and the head of the Crisis States program here at the LSE, to uh, briefly respond to Toby's presentation. Thanks. Okay, maybe I can do that just from here, um, rather than standing up. It's an intimate group, though we do have a few people who are sitting up above. We have to look for their questions. Uh, thank you, Toby, very much. You know, um, uh, the Development Studies Institute was only set up in 1990, so if you had applied a year later, we might well have gotten you here. So um, if ever, again, you do decide to do a degree at the LSE, um, think of us. Um, I appreciate this talk enormously, uh, particularly since we're following processes of, of crisis and breakdown in various countries, including in some of the neighbors of the CAR, though we're not working on the Central African Republic ourselves. And I think your talk illustrates just what a challenge the United Nations faces in such situations, in stark relief. And I think I want to concentrate my comments a little bit around that, and I hope we can have a good discussion about the nature of those challenges. Um, it's... It's not that uh, the, the CAR is exceptional in Africa, unfortunately, and this is the great problem. Um, this is a continent that was left behind um, in the 1990s. Um, in part, it's a continent that has suffered the, the most direct fallout, not only of the, the, the worst, shortest, but also worst rapacious period of colonialism earlier on, but then also the collapse of the, uh, of the Soviet Union and the ending of the Cold War. Enormous impact. Uh, and then also was at a formative stage in, its develop in the development of various parts of the continent at a time when there was an innovation of neoliberal reforms informing development policy. So I think Africa has suffered three times over by uh, being um, at a stage of development at the wrong place. Uh, at the wrong time, um, and certainly for anybody living in many of these countries, they, they, they were clearly in the wrong place to be able to have uh, any chance at a decent livelihood. On top of everything you said, the adult prevalence rate of HIV is over 13% in, in, in the CAR, and the CAR was at the, at, right at the origin of the epidemic. Um, uh, so, so the challenges are, are, are um, huge indeed. Um, one, one of the things that became clear to me as you spoke is that being able to achieve progress depends in the first instance, and I think you said this, on ensuring a monopoly of violence, uh, ensuring a, that the security forces of the state um, really can enforce some kind of peace. 
And, of course, the most worrying thing about the CAR today, that at least from my point of view, not knowing much about the details inside the country, are the reports of continued violence in internally displaced people. And, unfortunately, as you mentioned, the CAR suffers uh, from having on its borders Chad, um, the DRC, and Darfur. Um, so clearly, uh, it's at a there's a vector of of um, of violence and insurgency movements all around the country. Um, it seems to me that it's very difficult to see any progress made uh, in the car over time without consolidating the peace that has been forged. And it's interesting that you say President Bozise has uh, welcomed the ICC. That was recently, just last week, I think, um, that there's a a volonté on the part of the regime to try to preside over a law-bound state. Um, And I wonder whether, um, in this kind of context, uh, the United Nations really needs a much bigger capacity to support those regimes that are trying to consolidate peace. Do we have to think about Darfur, DRC, Chad, and the CAR in a more joined-up way? And what prevents that? And clearly the United Nations is no bigger or more effective than the the member states that make it up, and particularly that make up the Security Council. But in other words, are we thinking about a UN and a UN capacity for intervention that's up to the task that's faced when security breaks down in places like this? Certainly in the Democratic Republic of Congo next door, um, the MONUC, um, the UN mission in the country, has not yet been able to raise the muscle necessary to root out the former Rwandan armed forces that participated in the genocide next door who who are enrooted in the eastern part of the Congo. So that's a big question, and I'd love to have your reflections about that. Is the UN really um, empowered to do what it needs to do to secure peace, the number one one task in a place like the CAR? The number two task, and I'm not sure it's captured by um, by the, uh, or will be captured at the roundtable next week, uh, the roundtable of donors that you spoke about. And that's really looking at you know, what are the production possibilities in a place like the CAR? Uh, you mentioned the poverty figures. Uh, there's over 70% of the people of the country, as I understand it, are living in the rural areas. Over 50% are dependent on agriculture, and it's mostly subsistence agriculture. So I wonder if there, there is a reigning IMF growth, um, poverty reduction growth facility, uh, and a poverty reduction strategy plan has been elaborated under the tutelage of the IMF and the World Bank, how much does it really focus on restoring agricultural production or developing agricultural production beyond where it's been? Uh, for those of you who, who – who here was at the Paul Collier lecture last week? A lot of people, right? So you'll remember that he talked about the plight of not only landlocked countries but landlocked and resource poor – and, and natural resource endowed countries and and the kind of deadly combination that can make. And so you mentioned diamonds, and diamonds have been an important resource there. But it's probably not enough to explain why the CAR is in the situation it is, because we have 
the example of Botswana, for instance, which is landlocked and also resource rich. What makes the difference? And it seems to me a real focus on production and the productive possibilities of the country needs to take a bigger place. And do the Millennium Development Goals allow us to talk about that? Do they focus attention on that? You, you, you outlined the, the uh, objectives of the MDGs, reducing poverty, increasing education, etc. But these are all welfare goals and not necessarily goals about wealth creation. So um, um, I'm, I'm wondering if the international community really is looking in the right place for restoring the possibilities for, for development in the CAR. Um, Aid is the, among the lowest in Africa, you said, and as I mentioned, aid to Africa declined radically in the 1990s, just at a time when aid was needed the most after a decade of structural adjustment and debilitating, debilitating reforms. Um, and that was due in no small part to something that Paul Collier said last week when he apologized personally for having participated in the proposition that aid should follow only the best performers. And I think that has been a problem. And we have to look, there's a positive shift in the international development community away from that position, seeing just what dire straits the weakest and most poorly performing countries are in. Um, um, But of course, Um, Like you mentioned, uh, there's a certain worry about so much of the aid being humanitarian aid, and I thought by that you might have meant that there should be more developmental aid, and so therefore, you know, what about restoring production? Um, I think to to finish off, um, I'd just like to return to this question of security, because... um, we saw that there was the EU just approved uh, sending 3,000 troops to a combined effort in the region. Um, and again, I ask, is this really enough? Uh, further, I would ask, what kind of attitude or understanding, maybe you could raise this at the roundtable next week, does the IMF have about uh, the way that macroeconomy should be managed in a place like the CAR. You mentioned that soldiers are not being paid. Well, we know from Guinea-Bissau and we know from, from DRC that the biggest source of continued outbreak of violence is when soldiers aren't paid. Uh, I noticed that the IMF in its most recent report on the CAR praised it for good macroeconomic management, which probably means it's keeping its okay. budget deficit in line. But should there be a suspension of such logic, at least insofar as it goes to pay soldiers in your armed forces in order to maintain some security? Maybe that kind of issue should be raised at the round table. When thinking about, uh, when thinking about aid for a place like the CAR, that's aid for reconstruction. Uh, so the, the question of a security challenge, is, challenge should make us think differently about development and about what's needed, about macroeconomic management. We have to think outside the, the, the standard uh, box, it seems. And while I think it's very good that the worldwide uh, the WWF is present uh, in, the, in the CAR, uh, and I think it's good that campaigns be waged to educate people about washing hands and distributing mosquito nets, I, I think that perhaps there has to be much more attention at that very basic 
uh, assistance and promotion and even promotion in relationship to special trading incentives for, for production to be restored in a place like the CAR and for security to be consolidated. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I might get you to answer James's tremendously useful comments uh, during the question and answer session, so if you could weave them into your answers, I know that might be asking rather a lot. But uh, we have two uh, microphones, one over here, one over there, and actually one upstairs, uh, so let's not leave those people upstairs out. Does anyone have any questions? Uh, Marty, sit down here. Hi, Molly's Glacius. I'm a lecturer here. And I'm one of maybe very few people who's actually been in the Central African Republic. I was there a month ago um, asking people how they felt about the ICC investigation. And that's what I wanted to ask you about in relation particularly to the security situation that James also raised. The first is kind of a simple factual question, although it might not be easy to answer. Have you seen since the announcement of the investigation in May 2007 any effect on the violence perpetrated in the current conflict, both by the army and the rebels? Is there some sort of um, effect of fear, even though the investigation currently concerns the earlier situation? And my second question would be, given that you seem to think that Bozizé, the president, is a man you can work with, but he also ultimately presides over the army that's um, responsible for a lot of the violations, would you encourage the ICC to also begin investigating current violations in the two conflicts for which um, the army and ultimately the people in the current government might be responsible? Do I? I yeah, I think we should. That's quite a lengthy, complex question. So uh, we Okay. Um, yes and no. No. Uh, I think <coughs> those, are, those are my answers. Um, several things happened in, in uh, the summer which have had a uh, which seem to have had an impact on levels of violence perpetrated. Uh, in villages in the northwest in particular, but also in the northeast. Um, and these were high-profile uh, things that happened. One was the arrival of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, um, at the invitation of the government, and their office is now open, and the investigation is, if not underway, about to get underway. Um, another incident was uh, the death of an international aid worker and I'm sorry that it needs a death of an international aid worker um, to spark change but sometimes that's what it takes uh, there was a young woman working for uh, Doctors Without Borders Médecins Sans Frontières the French chapter in the northwest, and uh, the vehicle in which she was traveling um, took two bullets and one killed her. Um, and that made a lot of noise because the French foreign 
minister happens to be one of the founders of MSF. Uh, and um, <coughs> this young lady's father was the mayor of an important town in France. So there was an immediate political response to a terrible tragedy. And um, the president responded by traveling to the area uh, where the incident took place and upon getting there saw that villages had recently been burned. And how could this happen? And who did this? Um, he had been told previously uh, by people in the UN, by people in the French administration, by people uh, working for other institutions or representing countries, that at times government soldiers, at times presidential guard, at times rebel groups, at times uh, bandits coming in from Chad, uh, abuse people's rights severely and that this is not on. The extent to which officials have control over that is um, questionable. I'm not discussing whether or not it is their responsibility but it's the extent to which people can actually control what happens hundreds of kilometers away uh, by troops who are not trained and who have no means of communication. Um, but since those two developments, uh, the arrival of the ICC and the death of Elsa Serfas was her name, uh, there seems to have been an improvement in the behavior of presidential guard, army um, on the one hand, and some uh, other elements on the other. That's not to say everything's got better. There are some rebel groups who I'd say that their behavior has actually gone in the opposite direction since then. Um, I think the ICC is going to be focusing very much on uh, the period for which it was invited uh, which is late 2002, early 2003. But uh, if, if I've understood correctly, uh, as that investigation goes on, uh, if the ICC comes across other things, it will look into those. And um, as I mentioned during my talk, I think it's a positive sign that the government invited the ICC. This is only the fourth time that the ICC has been invited into a country to run an investigation. So it's, it's an important development. Uh, and I think that everybody in, in Bangui and elsewhere, I hope, welcomes it. Um, at what stage do, would you like me to comment on a couple of things that you've raised? I could do that quickly now. I, I, I will be quick. Um, I, I completely overlooked. You, you may have seen me stumble at one stage during the presentation. There was a slide that I was expecting and it didn't come up. Um, it was a slide about Minurkat, which is the Security Council approved um, peacekeeping force which is being deployed into the southeast of Chad and the northeast of the Central African Republic. Um, it's a small force. Uh, but a small force is better than no force, I think. 
uh, and it's a step in the right direction because when you work in a place which is as unknown as CAR and uh, as, as forgotten as it is, um, you grab onto just about anything you can uh, and use it as a hook to get some attention for the place. And I think that the fact that the EU is putting this force in place um, is really a stopgap measure. The UN wanted to do it. It couldn't. It was being blocked uh, in Chad from doing so. But the EU was able to, uh, to push this through, and, uh, and it's something that I certainly welcome. And I hope that it helps stabilize the situation on the one hand. I also hope that it helps aid agencies do their job on the other. Um, yes, of course, the UN needs bigger capacity. We all need bigger capacity. Um, but having just come from a, a job at headquarters before I went to CAR, I know how difficult it is for headquarters to respond everywhere very well all the time. Um, it really is not easy to make the, the resources available that, that people such as me now in the field would like. Um, but yes, there should be a regional approach to car chad uh, uh, at the very least, and I think that that's something that we're now seeing develop. Certainly, I am in, in very regular contact with my counterpart in, in Chad in particular because I've got... Uh, up to 60,000 people who fled from the Central African Republic into Chad and at some stage will want to help them come home whenever they are ready to do so. No question whatsoever that we need to focus on production. It's economics, economics, economics and revival and reviving production and, and getting, uh, whether it's a diamond mine, a gold mine, a cotton production uh, facility that used to exist and could well do so again uh, up and running that's going to help CAR uh, probably much more than, than the UN and the NGOs ever could. Uh, I think we're aware of that and that will be a central feature of, of the roundtable at the end of this week, as will be issues such as the IMF's poverty growth reduction facility which has just kicked in um, security sector reform, which I'd mentioned before, so looking at the justice system, the army, the police, uh, the gendarmerie, to make sure that those function and so that the government can rule by law and keep the peace. Um, and, you know, a word on that to donors, really, uh, is, you know, there's a tremendous challenge at the moment. If you work for DFID, or if you work for Danida, you're under a lot of pressure to focus your aid, and you're under a lot of pressure to get the biggest bang for your buck, as they would say in another country. Um, and the tendency is to say, well, Danida will focus on 12 countries in Africa. And guess what? CAR is not on that list. And uh, CEDA will do the same and USAID will do the same, etc., etc., etc. And we've gone through this discussion with many a donor, and a lot of them have said, well, you know, we're really sorry, we need to focus, we just can't do everything everywhere, um, and we won't be working in CAR in any bilateral sense, but we're willing to engage through the UN or via some other channels some multilateral channels such as the Global Fund for TB, Malaria, um, 
and HIV-AIDS, as I mentioned before. But I think it's also important that donors try to be as flexible as possible here, especially on questions of debt arrears, debt payment, debt relief, um, because there really is no way that, that CAR or any country like it can, can pull itself up on its own. It's not going to happen. And the real risk here is not that we're all uh, shedding tears because people are poor in the middle of Africa. It's because this can be a destabilizing factor and is a destabilizing factor for important countries in the region. And it can also serve as a safe haven for some real troublemakers. Some of you may be aware that uh, the Lord's Resistance Army, which nobody really wants to have in its back garden, um, have often been thought to be present in CAR. Uh, and we now know that elements from the Lord's Resistance Army have set up camp in parts of CAR. And there's really very little that the government can do about it. It's international engagement that's going to help uh, what is a legitimate government that is trying to work uh, concertedly move things in the right direction. There were some other hands. There's a question down here at the front. Uh, so we'll, we'll take two or three questions now, I think, and gather them in, and then you can sure. comment accordingly. So there's one down here and one over here. Can I uh, go now? Uh, here. Sorry. Just that here, here. Yeah, in the middle. All right. Um, I'll just ask a question as I've got the mic. Um, we know natural resources can be a double-edged sword. Um, I was a little disturbed by what you just said, that anything can be better for car, um, gold mines, diamond mines. Are we going to see essentially a car becoming a Botswana or is it going to be a Liberia? Is transparency something so often linked with uh, conflict in natural resources? Is that going to be something that's going to be pushed by the UN and can the president, do you think, put this in its right place? Good. There's a question right down here on the, in the fourth or fifth row in the middle and a question over here on the right. You mentioned that judicial and uh, governance institutions are attempted to being constructed. And I was just wondering uh, how, well, I was just wondering whether CAR, how and whether it is making a checks and balance system within the constructions of governance institutions. I missed the last sentence. Could you just repeat? I was just wondering if you could illustrate how and whether um, CAR is creating a checks and balance systems within their governance institutions. And finally, for this round. Yeah, um, my question is about, um, <coughs> I mean, I, I, I'm quite, I get quite worried when you constantly refer to the legitimacy of the government just because it has had, an, it has, it came in through an election. And I think that sometimes the UN is too quick or the international community is too quick to legitimize governments simply because they've come in through elections and to ignore the ugly bits of these legitimate governments. And I think the Kabila government in the Congo and what's going on in the east of that country can really demonstrate how the UN can sometimes go for easy conclusions and ignore really, really what are ugly bits of some of these governments. So one of my questions, and I, I have two, is how fundamentally different 
is the Bozizi government from previous governments. What is it that previous governments have done that has sunk that country to the depths in which you found it that the Bozizi government is not doing? Secondly, um, in your conclusions, you seemed to invest a lot of hope in what the UN and humanitarian organizations are going to do because there are now very many of them. And my reaction to that is that I think that sometimes that can actually be quite harmful because um, there is a conversation or a, a discussion that's been going on within international uh, aid circles about new aid delivery modalities. Um, and there are two things that are normally said when that discussion is going on. One is that countries should be helped to help themselves. Secondly, uh, that one way in which countries can be helped to help themselves is by working through their systems and building them up. Now, I don't know how you reconcile that with an influx of NGOs and humanitarian organizations and the UN. And here I would like to call your attention to Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda is a country that's not very popular with NGOs. And that's because the Rwandese government is considered to be arrogant, but that arrogance is based on a willingness to do things themselves. And anyone who goes to Rwanda now would notice that there has been a lot of change. And this has been brought about by the government's own efforts. Now, I'd like you to comment on these things. Thanks. There's no such thing as an easy question at the LSC, I'm afraid. So there were three tough ones. Well, there's no such thing as an easy job in the UN. Um, no, I think those are all really helpful questions. Thanks a lot. I mean, I certainly don't want to come across as uh, someone, you know, who's apologizing for uh, one government or another. Um, as I said at the beginning of the presentation, it was broad brush. And so, broadly speaking, uh, that's the way I see things. Um, you know, an influx of NGOs, okay, when I got to CAR in June 2006, there were three. We're now up to about 20 in a, in a country of 4.2 million people the size of France. Um, that is a very manageable proposition. We're not talking about 100, 200, 300, and we will not be speaking about that. Um, an influx of UN agencies, uh, when I got there, there were six, we're up to nine. Um, Certainly, we're very, very conscious um, of our own imperfections and the fact that uh, when you work in these types of environments, you do the best you can and often satisfaction is you <coughs> did no harm. Uh, you know, these are very difficult environments in which to, to operate. Uh, and, and it's social science. I can't run a controlled experiment. I will not be able to prove to you in two or three or four years' time that any of my efforts have really made a difference. I think they are. I hope they do. But I won't be able to lay it out in front of you and say, here's the proof. This isn't chemistry. This is social science. I think that we've had an experience with the Global Fund uh, during the last couple of years which illustrates the way in which we should have worked and could have worked better. Um, 
Urgent, urgent, urgent. HIV, HIV, HIV. People are dying. And the UN stepped in, received a lot of money, unloaded a lot of money, uh, and didn't build the capacity of the government while doing, while carrying out this, this program. And I think that that was a mistake, and we've recognized it. Um, and we are now in the process of saying, well, actually, UNDP, which is managing the Global Fund uh, uh, project, um, which is a $60 million project, it's, it's a substantial size project in CAR over the course of several years. But UNDP has now said, we're going to hand this over step by step to the authorities. It's going to take us several years to do that because we need to build up capacity and management systems and the like. Um, but I think that during the last three years, there was a real period lost there where there should have been much more capacity building. There should have been much more uh, help to help themselves, as you put it. You know, <coughs> we did an interesting study recently looking at... Um, <coughs> the ministers of former presidents and the ministers of the current president and which ethnic group are they from and which social background are they from and what we found we really are trying to answer the question you know how inclusive is the leader and inclusion is critical in a multi-ethnic uh, society which is fairly polarized and, and consistently uh, been privy to coups and changes in government that were anything but democratic. Uh, and what we found was that the current regime is the second most inclusive that has existed in CAR. It's not the best, but it's a far cry from the worst. Um, and so, yes, certainly for the time being and up to the next election, uh, we think that political stability is important and we think that uh, given that there is a head of state who did win an election that was organized, um, that's the game in town. Checks and balances on the judiciary. Um, come and work with us in car. Uh, you know, it's... Um, I'm not even sure you can talk about a failed state in this particular instant because um, in many parts of the country there never was a state. I mean, we're really talking about establishing systems uh, and trying to work out what could function the best. And um, the issue of checks and balances is pressing um, in an environment where just about everything else is pressing. Um, that's a pretty unsatisfactory answer to your question. I recognize that. Um, and yes, I can understand your concerns about my enthusiasm for let's get the diamonds up and running. Uh, clearly, we would prefer to have a Botswana on our hands than a, a, a Liberia. Um, but, <coughs> you know, is it not astonishing that the country that has reportedly the fifth largest diamond deposits in the world um, cannot uh, enhance or increase its government receipts enough to pay salaries. You know, clearly there's a real management issue here 
and, and that's something that the US government actually uh, has just started engaging in. And um, my hopes are certainly that uh, within a few years' time, you have a government in place that can manage things responsibly and, and enable that country to benefit from natural resources uh, in a way that is uh, participatory and constructive. Let's put it that way. James, do I think there's more people. All right, fine. So we've got about uh, nine minutes left uh, for uh, probably a couple of questions. Uh, you, you had your hand up at one point. So there's one down there, and then there's one right at the back, and one just further forward here. Sorry to everyone else. Uh, but be um, <clears throat> I would like to know more about the problems with the monopoly of, of violence. I'm working for the Crisis State Center as well and the, the, the capacity of the government to reach out power uh, is usually manifested uh, in, at least in, in the very first instance by the capacity to control the territory physically. That is not the case in the Northeast and the Northwest when, when I understood you correctly. Um, and the diamonds are in the south. So the motives for the rebels is not the Kolyi argument of greed, obviously. Yeah. What is it about and what is needed to address it? Because they obviously challenge um, the legitimacy of the elected president. And this outreach of power, first through military, but then through s state at all, and you mentioned there has ha hardly been a state in the Central African Republic, um, is that a topic for the UN? Is that something really kept in mind? That state building is the big challenge. To get the state visible from all sorts of local perspectives. That is not only military, military that is schools, that is tax collection, that is, is whatever. And don't leave it to all sorts of NGOs. Don't let one province be run uh, um, by this sort of health system, faith-based, yeah. and, and, and the other one by a different one. Gulova uh, covered much of that. Um, so what is needed to address the problems um, of the armed challenged in the north? And what can you do as a, as a UN representative to help the state to outreach, to, to broadcast power over the territory much more? Just a, a quick sort of follow-on to some of the other people's questions. My understanding is that your job is to coordinate, or a big part of your job is to coordinate between the different UN agencies and the different donor agencies and the CAR government. And I'm just wondering, I'd be interested in your assessment of how much those different groups have competing agendas or complementary agendas and what it's like to be in that position of coordinating between them and how you go about it. Um, I would like to ask um, whether you can give a bit of comments on the inclusive political dialogue that is supposed to be held. Right. What can we reasonably expect from it? And then very briefly, I w was wondering if maybe you had any idea how many people died in the CAR due to the rebellion which started 
Okay, good. Um, thanks very much for those. You know, um, let's start with the easy one. No, I don't know how many people died. Okay, uh, I could take a guess. Uh, I could try to indicate some figures, uh, but I wouldn't want to do that right now. Uh, and if you give me your email address, uh, we can have a discussion about that, or I can put you in touch with people with whom you could have a discussion about that. Um, the, you know, let's be clear here as well. I, you know, absolutely not. I, I would not want uh, NGO A in one part of the country trying to set up one health system and NGO B uh, working with another UN agency perhaps setting up a different type of health system in another place. I don't think that would be very helpful. Um, that goes to the core to a couple of issues with which I grapple daily, competition and coordination. Um, it's... Uh, pleasure in a way working in a place that is unknown and forgotten because you don't have many donors and you don't have many NGOs and in terms of competition and coordination that does make things easier than it would be in another environment. Uh, I managed the UN's re, uh, humanitarian response to the crisis in Chechnya from 99 to 2003. Lots of competing agendas very complicated situation from that perspective. This is rather different. Um, and I do think that here we have a really nice opportunity to get together some key actors to work with the state, no matter how small, and, and one of the technocrats, I mentioned technocrats earlier that the president has managed to get back, is actually the Minister of Health. He was a former official, a senior official with the World Health Organization in Geneva and he's come back to his country at his own cost to work as the Minister of Health. Um, so yes, I think that state building, uh, we can certainly provide advice and support, but I would want the government to drive that and I would want um, it to be done in a very participatory, consultative way with people. And it's so key to get out there and to listen to people. And when you travel outside Bangui, one of the most striking things is that people often say, gosh, no one's ever stopped to listen to me. And you travel outside Bangui and you get to a town that has really got no state presence. Uh, you know, post offices may be less and less relevant in the UK. But they're pretty relevant in places like CAR, but there aren't any. Um, you know, the most minimal state presence, a prison, a police officer. You know, these are things that don't exist in, in much of the country. And uh, it's important that it does, and I think that it's, it is very much a central feature of, of what I'm trying to do. Perhaps I didn't mention it, but the, the fact that I've established... Uh, uh, several offices outside the capital is not only to be closer to people who need help, but it's also a way of putting ourselves in a position where we can say to the government, you've got to move outside the capital. You've got to engage with the population. If you do that, there is a possibility 
that you send a signal which is strong enough to the population that we are a government of and for the people. And you therefore diminish the possibility that Bandit X comes along and says, hey, join my rebel group or join my group because it's so very easy when you live in the middle of nowhere in CAR to say, hey, take a Kalashnikov, join my gang and um, let's go loot or, or, you know. So the, the, the political uh, statements made by some of these rebel groups that exist in CAR are really rather unclear. Sometimes you don't know what they stand for. And I've reached out and met uh, the heads of the three rebel groups in CAR. I think it's an important feature of what the UN does. We exist to listen to anybody and to entertain any concern. And um, it's actually hard to understand what they're really after. Um, the group in the Northeast, the UFDR, is much better organized than the group in the Northwest, and they have a clearer political agenda. But it's still a bit hazy, you know, beyond power sharing, okay? What do you understand by that? What does that mean? What are the implications? Yeah. Um, which makes ha holding a national inclusive dialogue pretty difficult. You know, talk about what? Um, I've actively encouraged the president to engage. Uh, the UN is willing to pay what it costs to transport people to the capital or elsewhere if need be to keep people talking instead of taking up arms. Um, but it's, it's unclear sometimes what people really want and um, uh, hopefully through this national inclusive dialogue we will be able to get to grips with that better. And just to close, um, I suppose we're lucky in a way. You're absolutely right to have noticed that uh, the two rebel groups that are the most active in the northeast and the northwest uh, aren't near the diamond mines. And we're hoping that we can keep it that way uh, because that link seems not to have been made too overtly by people in, inside CAR. It has been made by another group outside the country uh, that I mentioned earlier. But um, I think, you know... <coughs> Let me just close by saying this is a pretty challenging environment in which to work. Uh, there are many, many imperfections. And uh, again, I welcome your questions, your feedback on what we're doing and how we're trying to do it. You should feel free to send us emails or engage in our chat room via our intranet um, because we're really trying to reach out and have a very open dialogue and an open relationship with different institutions, with think tanks, and with academia. I think it's in that sense uh, that we hope to make progress and hope to do uh, things well. And if at any stage, and I say this to everybody, you feel that we're not doing things well, or you want to provide us feedback, you should certainly feel uh, free to do so. It will be read. We might not act on it, but we'll read it. Thank you very much.